from the Partnership for Public Service. This is Profiles in Public Service. A podcast that shares the stories of public servants who work on our behalf every day to make our country safer, healthier, and more prosperous. We talk with career public servants, emerging leaders, journalists, and many more to better understand what it means to be a public servant, the incredible variety of careers possible in government, and how public service impacts all of our lives. I'm Lauren DeYoung Shulman. And I'm Rachel Klein Kircher. This week, we will be hearing from Carrie Stokes, Chief Geographer at the U.S. Agency for International Development, otherwise known as USAID, and the Director of the agency's GeoCenter. Founded in 2011, the GeoCenter uses web-based digital mapping technology and geospatial tools and analysis in support of international development. A geographic information system, also known as GIS, is a system that helps collect, manage, analyze, and map all types of data that are associated with a location. Carrie's work and the GeoCenter have helped USAID make better decisions about its economic and humanitarian assistance in developing countries by harnessing the power of satellite data and geographic information to combat poverty, disease, and natural disasters. Since establishing the GeoCenter in 2011, Carrie has fostered a community of 70 geospecialists across the agency, half of whom are Foreign Service National employees from the countries where USAID works. Carrie is also a leader in preparing the next generation of public servants, notably through the Youth Mappers Program, an initiative funded by USAID. Youth Mappers is a global community of students, researchers, educators, and scholars that use public geospatial technologies to highlight and directly address development challenges worldwide. We are also joined today by a former research fellow with the Youth Mappers Program, Sawyer McCarley. Sawyer is a recent college graduate who is now a civil servant working part-time as a disaster recovery specialist with the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Carrie and Sawyer, welcome. Carrie, you work as the chief geographer at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Tell us about what is that role? What does the GeoCenter do at USAID and why is it so important? Well, yes, I am the chief geographer at USAID. We are the foreign assistance lead for the U.S. government. We work in about 100 countries across Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe. And we focus on alleviating poverty and driving economic growth, specializing in many sectors like agriculture and food security, democracy and governance, conflict and stabilization, environment and climate change, health and humanitarian assistance during disasters. So my team, which is the GeoCenter, is made up of geographers and data analysts, and we provide data-informed insights to our USAID colleagues all around the world. We conduct geographic analyses and we make maps to illuminate where need is the greatest to ultimately inform our colleagues about where to prioritize placement of our programs all around the world. 
So Carrie, for our audience that may not all be technical, and I'm going to include myself in this, can you define GIS for us? Sure. GIS really stands for Geographic Information Systems, and it has now come to encompass many additional tools that are geography related. But the simple way to think about it is uh, a mapping tool or mapping application. Can you tell us a little bit about a project that you're working on to give our listeners a sense of like, what does this look like in practice? Sure. And you are right. In today's world with so many things grabbing our attention, being able to focus when you have to make a decision, sometimes without full information and under, you know, a time sensitive crunch, having information that we can see to display complicated or complex relationships between uh, different factors that affect a place that we're working is really powerful. So my team uses geographic, economic, and demographic information to generate these custom analyses uh, for our field missions, as we call them, our field offices and our technical offices in Washington, D.C. At any one time, we are working on probably 20 to 30 projects at a time with a team of about 18 of us. And a few examples of things that we're, we've been working on lately are um, analyzing the root causes of migration from what's called the Northern Triangle of Central America, responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, providing satellite imagery to monitor forest loss in the Amazon, helping countries in Africa improve their resilience to climate change, and mapping for malaria prevention is another example. What a diverse set of issues and challenges to be able to portray in that way. How do you decide where and why, and maybe with what lens to map a place? Because you gave so many incredible examples that it spurred in my mind 20 more that could be possibilities as well. Well, of course, the world is, um, it's a big place to map for sure. And we do focus our energies sometimes on mapping undermapped or unmapped places. But most of the time, what we're trying to do is better understand where USAID is already working. It seems like an easy question to ask, but it's not a always an easy question to answer because we have a presence in so many countries around the world and in so many sectors, as I mentioned earlier. So understanding the scale of our work and the various types of programs and projects within countries is a massive undertaking. So we will usually start by working with our colleagues who work in our field offices, also known as missions, to better understand where their programs are currently placed. And then we like to also bring in the data and analytics with all kinds of different data sets, as I mentioned earlier, to understand where the need is actually the greatest. Many times those two things match up, but not always. And so it's important for us to be able to know where should we be targeting our programs in the future? So the way we decide what projects to take on is truly based on the needs expressed by our colleagues from all over the world and in Washington, where we are based. And they will ask us. They'll come to us uh, with a question or a particular challenge that they haven't been able to figure out. And they'll say, hey, we hear you. You all make maps or you monitor what's happening on the earth from space. You know, can you help us? So, Carrie, we would love to know something about the Youth Mappers Program. Understanding it is an initiative that's funded by USAID. And I love how it's described as not just building maps, but building mappers. Can you explain for our listeners about the Youth Mappers Program and its goals, which empower a new generation to contribute to geospatial mapping 
and international development programs? Sure. So the Youth Mappers program is a signature initiative of the Geo Center, the team that I lead. And most of the work in our team is focused inward. As I mentioned earlier, we're trying to improve decision making about international development programs. And it became clear to me a few years into starting the Geo Center about 10 years ago that there was a gap. We needed digital information ready to be analyzed from many places where USAID works, but it just didn't exist at that time. So it really became clear that there were these undermapped places in the world. In today's world, we're here in 2022 now, most everybody is familiar with using something like Apple Maps or Google Maps or having access to immediate mapping information on our cell phones. Believe it or not, that's a very recent functionality that many of us grew up not having. And it's hard to imagine our lives without it now. But in many of the places where USAID works, that functionality still does not exist. So I thought, along with a partner of ours in the university system, that tapping into the creativity and the innovative energy of young people in the universities around the world would be a great way to teach basic digital mapping skills create new geospatial data, which is a fancy way of saying mapping data, and allow people at a university level to learn about international development challenges around the world. So we use a platform called OpenStreetMap, OSM for short. It's a free and open mapping platform on the internet, and anyone can get access to it if you have access to the internet. So the idea here was to produce new geospatial data where it didn't exist, so that we could use that data in the GeoCenter and beyond for conducting the kinds of analyses we do for our programs. And also to empower a new generation with the tools and the confidence and leadership opportunities to define their own world and to participate in it with the latest in technology today. So that's where our tagline comes from. So we don't just build maps, we build mappers. This sounds exciting to me for somebody who is in school has these skills. And to your point, some of this technology, it didn't exist before. So are you also helping to shape academic programs and coursework that would actually train students in technology in the way that you're looking to use it? We are. And when we started on this adventure about seven years ago, we didn't know where we would be with it now. It was truly an idea and it was an experiment. And we started with three founding universities in the United States who each had proven abilities and experience working with mapping technologies and geographic information with students. So the idea unfolded first, as I said, with a few universities in the United States, but soon it spread to Africa and West Africa. And then it went from there to many other countries. And now we have more than 300 universities in 65 countries thousands of students who have gone through the program graduated and are now even using some of the skills that they learned in job opportunities afterwards. So it was clear to me that when this program surprised us all and pleased us all by just really taking off, that it made sense to go beyond just basic mapping skills and to also support curricula in universities, in geography and other uh, social sciences and the hard sciences about 
how geography really is a unifying study of discipline that brings in so many different types of challenges and opportunities for sleek seeking solutions to some of our greatest, you know, challenges in our societies. And these mapping clubs get started now called Youth Mappers, and they all have individual names in their own universities that they choose. And they take on issues in their local communities that they can collaborate with their peers in a virtual environment with other youth mappers from other universities all over the world in helping to map these places, these high-resolution satellite imagery as the backdrop. And then we, as the organizers of the program, tell them what are the areas we need to have mapped. And then that information is shared on this open platform that I mentioned earlier. So now we've got these leadership programs and areas of study and higher learning, uh, master's and PhD programs that we have invested in as well for students who qualify and can up their game, so to speak, on the geospatial front if they realize that what they've learned in the Youth Mappers program is something they'd like to pursue further. So Carrie, is there an example of a Youth Mappers project that you can share with us? Because this all just sounds incredible. Sure. So when we first got started with this, we collaborated with something called the Presidential Malaria Initiative, PMI. And the purpose of that initiative was to prevent malaria, since it's one of the largest killers of children under five years old in sub-Saharan Africa. And there are spray campaigns that use insecticide to spray homes. We also have additional programs that distribute mosquito nets that people hang over their beds when they sleep at night, because that's when people are most vulnerable to being actually bitten by a mosquito that could carry malaria. So the challenges that were faced by our spray campaigns were that it was difficult and expensive to do these remote efforts to go out with enough insecticide planned in advance and know that they're going to be able to cover at least 80% of the area of concern that we know is susceptible to malaria. So where we got involved with the mapping part with youth mappers was to create maps of the communities in advance of the spray technicians so that they would know how many homes they would need to spray, how many buildings, the roads, how to get there. These are usually very remote places sometimes. And they could plan how much insecticide to take with them. So the first time we involved our youth mappers in mapping this, we used, as I said, high-resolution satellite imagery as the backdrop. And then we validated the features on the ground that our youth mappers were mapping remotely with people on the ground who could verify, yes, this is indeed a person's home, or no, that's not a home, that's a granary. (laughs) And this was a nice collaboration too at the time with the Peace Corps, because at the time we had Peace Corps volunteers on the ground who could verify that we were getting those features right. So after this effort to map, we then followed up to better understand what was the impact of this work. And we did learn that the spray campaigns that were using these maps for the first time indeed improved the efficiency and the effectiveness of the program. And so then we replicated it in other countries that had similar challenges with malaria from mosquitoes. That is such an incredible example. And I love the network and the community and the capabilities that you're building with this. It's it's something that I don't think people recognize in government that it is, it is not just like people sitting in Washington who are sitting at their desks doing things. But with this network that you're building all over the country and all over the world is 
a really generous form of mentorship in a way. And that's the next thing I wanted to, to ask you about. So you strike me as a person who, when I ask this question, you're going to say like, this is so obvious. But given that this Youth Mappers program is just a, a very kind of different and capacity building form of mentorship, why is mentorship of young people important to you and to your work? What is the, the importance of this to this to the field overall, do you think? I think it's critical. From a big perspective, I would say that for democracies to be stable, we need participation from the people who live in the countries, uh, from citizens. And all segments of the population are important and all voices matter. And in my work, where we work all over the country, in countries that don't necessarily have uh, stable governments, it's critical to have the young generation feel as if they have a voice and not just feel it, but see it and make an impact. So from the perspective of democracy and governance, I think it's extremely important that we invest in our young people, their leaders, not for tomorrow, but for today. And in terms of being digital natives and undaunted by the plethora of digital technologies that exist today, Youth Mappers is one way to help them get engaged. It's not just a matter of learning a new technology, a new skill, but learning about social issues and giving them a tool to feel as if they have a part in the solution for it. So it involves, of course, the future stability of communities and countries and the world. I think it's empowering at a time in people's in their lives where they're wondering, you know, where do I fit in in my society and how can I contribute? I think it's important to tap young people for their creative ideas. You know, every generation pushes the previous generations with novel thoughts and a little bit of rebellion sometimes. And that's a good thing for us because yes, those of us who've been around for a while can get, kind of get set in the ways of our ways of doing things. And I've been so inspired by the incredible energy that I've been able to tap into and to see and to benefit from with so many young people around the world. And right here in our own country, we have a Youth Mappers website that explains how to get involved for universities that want to join the program. And Youth Mappers are uh, contributing blogs on almost a weekly basis about their work. So once they learn these skills, they take it to levels that are well beyond anything that I would have ever imagined or our partners in the university uh, system who run the program. And it, it, it really inspires me, especially on the days when I feel like the news is negative and you you almost wonder the sky is falling <laughs> by listening to all this, you know, the, the things on the news. And then I go read a Youth Mapper's blog and I feel so inspired. There's hope. There's hope because they have this belief in, they don't believe, they know about the interconnectedness of everyone. And they instantly connect now because that's how they grew up. And to be able to take that instant connection and produce new information and know that that information will be used by decision makers far away or near in their own communities, or that they themselves can take on social issues in their own local communities and become leaders to me, that's, as a public servant, I can't think of a more rewarding way to spend my time and energy. Sawyer, I want to bring you in on this question as well. And we'll, we'll ask you about your specific experience as a youth mapper in a moment. But I, I wanted to ask you about the other side of that mentorship. What did that mean to you to be a part of this program? And why do you think mentorship of young people in the public sector is so important right now? I think you guys have already hit 
the NOM had a lot of the issues. You know, I started out with the Youth Mappers program through an internship, and then I was asked to be the president of the Clemson Mappers. I went to Clemson University. Clemson Mappers was our chapter. And through that, I was able to be a leader. I was able to work directly with the Red Cross, a project called Call My Name. And through that, I had a couple of goals that I wanted to achieve. I wanted to pass on what I've learned to the next generation people that would be in the club. I wanted to work directly with an organization, which I worked with the nonprofit Red Cross, and I wanted to do a mapathon. And with the three to four months that I had, I was able to achieve those three steps. And I think I was able to do that just because of the skills I was able to learn through GIS and Youth Mappers. And when I graduated, I was able to pass the baton, if you will, to someone who was in the program below me. And I'm a sociology major, and she was in criminal justice. And we both saw potential in these skill sets. And now that she's graduating, she's looking for jobs within GIS because she sees so much potential in that. I love this kind of the passing of the torch and the passing of the skills. How did you first learn about the program and what inspired you to get involved as a research fellow? First, I want to start with how I got into GIS because I initially had no idea what any of this was. I'm going to be very honest. And I was walking, hiking with a friend one day and he's a data analyst. And he was explaining to me how you can take data off the internet and you can kind of compartmentalize it and give it visual perspective so you can like look at things. And I think Lauren hit on this earlier, where you can look at data um, and you can make change off of what you see. And being a sociology major, everything's dense. Everything is just a lot of words sometimes. And when you can like see the issue, you can grasp it a little bit easier and you can make it more sense of it. So I was like, well, let me see what I can do. So I got into this GIS certificate class through Clemson, the Clemson Center for Geospatial Technology, CCGT. And they offer a six-week program where you just get like the basic skills. And through that, they offer internship opportunities and any connections that they may have. And they sent me an email saying, hey, this is something you might be interested in because I personally like disaster management and planning. And they're like, this is something you could get involved in. And I applied on the whim. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. This is also two months before COVID. So I don't think any of us had any idea what we were getting ourselves into. And I got the internship and went that way. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about some of the work you did specifically through this program. And maybe maybe tell us what you're most proud of from the work that you did with the National Emergency Response GIS team in Jamaica. So... Like I said, it was during COVID. So initially, we were all going to go to our research country for a little bit and then come back and we were going to collaborate throughout the entire summer to create this research project. But with it being online, we kind of had to schedule out like our meetings, kind of like a project manager saying, hey, this is who we're going to meet with on this day. And then we're going to go back and analyze the data. Then we're going to like make these maps and see how we can do this. And my favorite thing that I got to do was I got to create like a proposal for a training program that they did. And one of the things that Youth Mappers is trying to do is to train people to do these skills. And I was able to kind of see the different gaps between disaster planning for them and like the time intervals of how long it took for them to do things, how long it took for them to see the issues. And I took a lot of the words that they were saying and I was able to um, kind of create like a six month long training proposal with Youth Mappers. And we would train people in Youth Mappers for a few months on OSM within these states and these governments. And then after a disaster, they could take these skill sets and kind of map out what was directly impacted by a disaster. So that the way they could take that data back to the agency and kind of create like a disaster response. 
So I have to tell you, my internships when I was in college, I thought were pretty cool at the time. Nothing like this and nothing with that really amazing on the ground impact, even amid COVID. But the other thing I love about this is how you've now transitioned to become a civil servant yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about like, what was that journey? How did the Youth Mapper program help you develop some of the skills or maybe the, the inspiration to pursue the role that you're in now? I, th- I think it came a lot from me being persistent and wanting to achieve a dream such as this. Like since middle school, early high school, I was like, oh, I'm going to help communities after disasters. And I had no clue what that meant. And uh, Youth Mappers kind of gives you that training to look at all three lenses. Right now, I'm currently an interagency recovery coordinator for FEMA. I work part-time and I am deployed directly after disasters. And the last time I was deployed was Hurricane Ida in Louisiana. And when that happened, they were like, hey, this is something we need you to do with this department. And it was the GIS department because I knew I had skill sets in that. And they were like, hey, you're just going to get up every morning and you're going to look at no imagery and you're going to map out the houses and communities after these disasters and see the path that it took, see what neighborhoods were directly impacted. And we put all of this in a database and sent it to the Army Corps of Engineers to help with disaster relief. But it was really cool because Youth Mappers gave me these skills. And from someone who like wouldn't have any idea what was going on, like it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of colors. It's a lot of maps. It's a lot of skills. But when you like really get to the point of it, it's just drawing points, lines, and polygons. Like It's nothing crazy. I think anybody could do it if you want to do it. And there's so much potential in it. But zooming out of the map, there's people working from all over the world on this, the state of Louisiana at that point. And every little neighborhood was highlighted or being highlighted. And to see that kind of international impact on such a project is really kind of humbling. I think what's so exciting for me is is listening to both of you, Carrie and Sawyer, describing these projects that have real-time results and I love that, you know, Sawyer, how many times in this conversation you've already said, I didn't even know what it was, to be honest, or I didn't know what I was getting into. And the fact that folks at such early stages of their career can make such an impact for literally life-saving undertakings. And, you know, here at the Partnership for Public Service, we have a call to serve network where we're really trying to encourage that next generation to enter public service. We're connecting federal agencies with universities. We're connecting students. Here's how to think about the government. Here's how to apply. I mean, I'd love to know, Sawyer, did you ever imagine you would be working for the federal government? No. Um, <laughs> it's kind of insane. It's a, it's a long process. Like I said, I wanted to do it in early high school and it took a long time. I found out what job I wanted and it took me a year to apply. I had to be very persistent on emailing the hiring managers or recruiters, making these contacts, having these constant conversations. Because sometimes people do mention there is a kind of like an invisible wall between the public and the private sector. And if you want it, it it's there and it's yours to take, but it, it does take a little bit of work. You know, and you had said that your dream had been to help communities after disasters, but not knowing what that looked like. And the fact that you can do that as a public servant. So would you encourage other students or young people to think about and really pursue these early career roles with the federal government? Absolutely. I think the federal government is a really good way to 
make change. Carrie and I were talking about this uh, the other day is like, it's a slow process, but the American government isn't supposed to be this very fast paced process. It's supposed to be slow. So everything is fair and even. But on the other side of that, you can really make real change. And when you work directly with communities and see what they need and what they are recovering from, and you're able to help them directly, that really does make a difference. And you mentioned, you know, being persistent was a big part of being able to get this opportunity. What other recommendation would you have for anybody who's in high school or college listening right now? Network, get to know people in the area so you can sit down and be like, hey, this is something I'm interested in. Do your research. I didn't know necessarily what it looked like. A federal resume is very different from a corporate resume. My federal resume is six to seven pages long. Get to know like what kind of skill sets you need. Learn those skill sets. One of the beautiful things about the internet is all the skill sets are there. You could just take certification classes. That's what really helped me. Just do your research, I would say. Actually, this comes back to a question I wanted to ask Harry earlier around those networks that, that are, are useful in going into the federal government. I mean, one of the things that you've done, Carrie, is build a network that students can utilize, whether you not you designed it this way by building the partnerships that are necessary to support youth mappers. It created a network for young people, young leaders to learn more about what the possibilities of the federal government are and what the, what the connections are, what the skills are, and so on. So I'm really curious, how would you suggest that others, federal government agencies, think about building partnerships like this? What are some of the lessons that you took away from this experience that they could apply in trying to think about how they could invest in young people in a way like Youth Mappers or another kind of corollary program? I think there are a lot of opportunities. And like Sawyer just said, it just takes doing the research to realize what may already be there. You just have to find them. So one of the things that I've taken advantage of even beyond the Youth Mappers program is creating formal and informal internships for students still in college. There are more formal programs with the federal government called the Pathways Program. There's another one called the Presidential Management Fellows Program, PMF for short, and that draws people with master's degrees. And then there's the AAAS program, which stands for uh, the American Academy for the Advancement of Science. And that brings people with PhDs into the federal government for a period of up to two years, usually. So there are existing programs that are in place. It's just a matter of tapping them. And nothing usually happens too fast in the government, I've found. And so if you really want to make change or do something innovative, you have to have the energy to sustain and to navigate the bureaucratic process. And you can still do very creative things and fun things and engage people who have energy for trying things out in ways that may have not never been done before. Another thing that I've done is reach out to local schools. Sometimes I'll give presentations when I'm asked, um, and and other times I'll purposely reach out to minority-serving institutions, for example, to ensure that we are offering partnerships and opportunities to people who historically may not have had access to working in the federal government or just in public service, whether or not it's the federal government or state or local government. But one of the things that I've heard from the many young people that I've been able to either provide internships to or ultimately hire or just have hopefully provided some inspiration to is that everybody wants a purpose-driven life. And the thing that the public service offers is just that. 
And it doesn't mean that you can't have a purpose-driven life working in the private sector. I've also worked in the private sector. I've worked in many different sectors. But to be able to have an idea and pursue it to fruition that in a way that you know is doing good for a large group of people, that is the purpose of the government. That's why it exists. And so I have worked in many places and many amazing experiences but I, I think my home, I landed in the government, in the federal government, and um, I love what I get to do. And I love trying to create opportunities for other people to be able to realize their dreams as well. You've been incredibly successful in that. One final question for you both, because you both in different ways told incredibly compelling stories around why public service is so important to you and the kind of impact you can have and the really creative and amazing paths you can take into it, but also when you're within government. So with all of that, why do you think that government has a hard time attracting young talent? And what's something we could do about it? How could we fix that? Well, I think it's important to just make people aware as a first step. I really think that many people, at least in this country and the countries where I work in with USAID, are not always aware of the many different diverse services that the government provides. And even the term the government makes it seem as if it's one thing or one entity or one, you know, special group, this body that's making all these great big decisions for everybody. It's not. The government is us. It's many. And so the word government is sort of this collective word. It it, it represents Two, three million people in the U.S., you know, in the United States um, who are working in various levels of government. And so I think it's, you know, an easy thing to blame when times are challenging and it, and you want to just find a reason for why things don't seem to be working out. <laughs> Say, oh, it's the government's fault. It's an easy out, but it's it's never usually that simple. The government is responsible for all the public goods that we come to rely on every single day the road system, the clean water, the tap that we have, most people have in their homes and they can trust that the quality of water, I realize it's not the case everywhere. The library system, the school system, caring about the air and the water that we breathe and we drink, standards for food when we go to the store to buy the food if you're not already growing it yourself. These are the behind the scenes sort of invisible infrastructure that allows for life that we enjoy in this country and in other countries to happen. And it's not until something goes wrong that people decide to blame it, but do they think to be appreciative every day when it goes right? So I think the awareness building is critical. And so what you all are doing is a big part of that here. I also think it's important to remember that the government doesn't have a budget for doing advertising uh, in the typical places where we see advertising, whether it's the television, or if it's on social media, we don't use the public's money to advertise for our work. We just do the work and then let the public, you know, live with with it. And it's hard to compete when there are so many other entities that do advertise about the things that they do and they accomplish. So I think the awareness building is absolutely critical. And many times people don't have an appreciation until they really need it. And then disaster is one of those examples that Sawyer talked about. You all of a sudden do appreciate when people do swoop in. If your community, unfortunately, experiences a disaster, that's one of the first faces you'll see is the people who come to help. And that is usually 
the face of the U.S. government. And Sawyer, we'd love your take as somebody who is a recent graduate. What do you see as, you know, reasons in addition to what Carrie shared? You know, why why is it hard for government to not just attract young talent, but to hold on and retain them? And if you could implement anything, any suggestion for the government to do, what would that be? Kind of what she was hitting on is like, it's really hard for people to like, actually see the advertisement side of it. But going back to like going on the internet, I know that during the hiring process, FEMA was offering all of these workshops, how to interview, how to say the appropriate things, how to do the appropriate resume. And I think that like the government is the people, like we the people. And I think there's definitely like a slower process to it. And people, when they get out of college, they want to do all of these big and grand things with all of these corporate companies. And that's great. And that's for them. But sometimes there's a real change that can happen a different way. And I think it's kind of the path less tracked from a lot of people because there is so many other opportunities that you could do. That's kind of right there in your front of your face. I would just say, take the leap. Like if you want to check it out, like this is definitely something that is worthwhile for you. This it has been an incredible conversation. I have, first of all, learned so much and I, I, I get inspired all the time about all the incredible things that government does that nobody knows about. And as you say, Carrie, we have no advertising budget. But this is one of those that was just truly beyond the scope of my imagination of where government is having impact in so many amazing and creative ways that is building out a next generation of public servants, in however you define it, not only across the country, but around the world. So um, thank you both so much for the conversation, but also really thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh, it's amazing. And I'm so happy to be able to share these stories with the world. Lauren, I loved the fact that we had two guests that were emblematic of what each other was saying. And so here we have Carrie talking about seeing a need, creating opportunities for communities, and having that need filled by students who get to do real-time projects, seeing real-time results. And then we heard from one of those students who actually saw this dream of supporting communities come to fruition. It was such a fun conversation. Rachel, the thing that I took away from it is that was mentorship made real. People talk a lot about like what, you know, mentorship, is it having coffees with people? Is them helping with your resume? Yes. But Carrie saw an opportunity not only to fill a real need in our foreign policy and a real need in terms of capacity, but a way to engage just what an amazing community of students and enthusiasts worldwide. And then with Sawyer, the fact that he took this nearly lifelong interest in just helping support people in disasters to join this program and have real-time impact in Jamaica. But just what an incredible story and what a way to show that like this is not, these aren't just like little things that people do to be nice. These are actual programs that make a huge difference in not only both of their lives, but in lives around the world. I mean, it was just incredibly inspiring. And what trust too, because Carrie was saying, I know that there are, there's brain power out there. And I loved, she also referred to the students as leaders and they have a chance to lead right now. We're not just developing and mentoring future leaders, but they can lead now. And then the trust from Sawyer saying, I, I didn't know exactly what I was getting into. I just 
followed this path and saw where it led. Just what a great pairing and an amazing opportunity. There was the point in the conversation where Sawyer was talking to us about work around Hurricane Ida and how people all over the place were helping contribute to new information around how the disaster was impacting communities and, and highlighting needs, highlighting requirements, hiding places where people needed help. And it was this crowdsourcing view on the work that we can do in public service that I had not really thought through before in ways that can bring people into working with government that I'm not sure exists in other sectors in the same way. And I just, you know, led to 10 million new thoughts and questions of like, how could this model be applied elsewhere? And I think that draws exactly on Carrie's point about you need for to have participation from citizens. And I do feel the technology has allowed for this participation, as you say, in ways that we could never have imagined. This would be one of those programs where it would have been so easy to set up a whole lot of rules and boundaries and barriers around it in terms of how to structure it and how to get good participation. But as you said before, the trust that Carrie had, not just that there was talent out there, but that it could be collaborative and purposeful and bringing people together from all over the world to solve problems together. Just what an amazing opportunity that she created. And she's so, I mean, it's funny. She's so humble about it. Like, oh, we just created this program. Like, no, this is amazing. You have no idea. Um, Which is, of course, it's so often what we hear from our interviewees. And she said, you know, government isn't one body. It's us. And just everything you said, like, that's the embodiment of it. It is us. And she gave the examples of all of that invisible infrastructure and all of the behind the scenes people and work. Again, the theme that we're hearing from all of our guests, this is the the unsung heroes, the work that you don't necessarily see front and center. And it is, it's everyone. And what an example of, of folks who aren't even uh, officially public servants still able to help in this way. And just to close this out, what was funny to me is as she was talking, I kept thinking, are you reading from the report that we just wrote on trust and government partnership? Because the themes there of what people in the United States don't see, that invisible work, the day-to-day activities of public servants, how they contribute to their lives, in the themes of what would make them feel more confident in their government, which is all of that, like to be able to see like that behind the scenes invisible work. That's exactly what Carrie was saying and exactly what we found in the trust report that when people say that they struggle with what government does or they struggle with trust in government, they're thinking politics. When you talk to them about these public servants who are doing this incredible work around the country, around the globe, invisibly, they are just as motivated and as inspired as we are, so which, which is why this podcast is such a joy to, for us to put together. And I really hope that the younger listeners take to heart what Sawyer was saying, because I was very jealous as he talked about how much easier it was to navigate the finding a federal job process because of the internet. When I was looking for a job, the internet didn't exist. And so... I just, I love that he emphasized that because it's not something to take for granted. Absolutely. Well, Rachel, this was a great new season podcast guest to bring on to be able to learn about these amazing opportunities. And I'm so glad we're continuing the show. I am as well. Thank you, Lauren. So 
that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already, please follow or subscribe to Profiles in Public Service wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check this episode's show notes to learn more about today's topic. And be sure to follow the Partnership for Public Service on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram to find out about future episodes. Profiles in Public Service is created by the Partnership for Public Service. Our writer and producer is Abigail Alpern Fish. Our script supervisor is Barry Goldberg. And our executive producer is Jordan Lapierre. Thanks to District Productive for co-producing this episode of Profiles in Public Service. See you next time. Thank you.